This week on the Faculty Factory Podcast. May 1st of 2019 in order to be promoted July 1st of 2020. So it's a, it's a long process, a 14-month process. Um, and we do have a report to the provost at the end of the year with all the data about how many people applied, how many dropped out, how many took time off the clock yada, yada, yada. Um, and then we summarize that um, when we make a, a post on the Dean's blog and in several different internal publications about who was promoted, what department, what, you know, what they were promoted from and to. So we send all of that out. And then we don't necessarily say, you know, uh, 67 people applied and 64 were advanced, um, but we're, that kind of data is available when people ask. In general, people are, if we're doing it right, people are successful because things have been managed along the way so that people are really come up to the point of promotion, really ready to put together a, a portfolio that demonstrates that the promotion is appropriate. That is just so interesting. I'm so glad you shared that. We really not talked about that on the Faculty Factory podcast yet. And it just is, you've really got me thinking about uh, all of our different processes and how we all do promotion and tenure differently. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Sue Pollard, the Senior Associate Dean at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville, Virginia. So why don't you tell everybody, everybody is always so curious, you know, how we get into academic affairs and faculty development because none of us studied it. So why don't you tell us your story? How did you land here? Okay. Thanks, Kim. First of all, thanks for inviting me to participate, and I'm happy to share my story um, because it is a funny way to get into this job, isn't it? Um, So I am a family doctor. Um, and I entered family medicine at a time when it was really just new as a specialty. In fact, my parents couldn't understand why I didn't just do pediatrics because that was so well established. But I knew from my third year of medical school that the thing I loved was the longitudinal relationship with patients, with seeing people in different phases of their life and seeing when they're ill and when they're well. And that may not sound like I'm answering a question, but the truth is that's exactly how I ended up in faculty affairs and faculty development. Because I've been in academics my entire career and I had roles um, in our UME curriculum and our URME programs and roles in our GME programs. Um, Before I actually joined the family medicine faculty, I had uh, government obligations, so I did three years of research in allergy and published in the area of um, identifying allergens, you know, identifying cockroach allergen. I was uh, um, first author on uh, the first two papers that identified major cockroach allergens, and I really had done all the work, and then I did a bunch of epidemiology. So I've dabbled in, you know, all different areas of medicine, but in the end, um, and in all different parts of the medicine training life cycle, but in the end, we, when I began working with faculty, I realized that this was what I love to do. And the reason I could see the similarity in the longitudinal relationship with faculties to the longitudinal relationship with patients. So with students and residents, the minute they walk in the door, you're preparing them to leave and go on to the next thing. But with faculty, when you you work hard to recruit them and get them here, and then it's all about helping them being successful and hoping you can keep keep them at your institution. That is, you know, I, I love that the way you've made that connection. Uh, so did you choose faculty affairs, academic, you know, affairs while you were doing your epidemiologic research on, you know, allergens or did, were you given the opportunity and then you went, aha, this jives with my longitudinal relationship, you know, quest. 
Right. So the truth is the the allergy work was long ago. It was early career, and it really kind of wound down in the early 90s as I got deeper involved in family medicine and leadership there. And I helped establish a program starting in the early 90s uh, called the Generalist Scholar Program. It's a program for – I had been on the admissions committee. I had noticed the work we put into recruiting the best we could for our MSTP program, and I thought, why don't we have a similar program for folks who are going to be primary care leaders? because MSTP are obviously our biomedical sciences leaders, our physician scientists. I thought, why don't we do the same for our primary care leaders? So long story short, I'm very involved in our application then for our, our Robert Wood Johnson Generals Initiative funding. And as one of the projects of that developed uh, something called the General Scholars Program, we were funded. We started the program. The first class of students entered in the summer of 94, and I'll always remember that because we have a summer program, and then they start class, and the day they started class was the day my daughter was born. So August 24th, 1994 is the day the first GSP group entered, and I ran that program for a number of years, and in that, in, in leading this institution-wide program came to the attention of leadership, and so was invited into a leadership development program, our longitudinal, you know, it's a, a cohort program in leadership, was invited by the Senior Associate Dean for Factory Development at the time, Sharon Hostler, and little did I know she was inviting me because she'd seen the work I'd done around the student program and thought, hey, I'm looking at my own succession planning, maybe this is a person who could do it. So she watched me through the course of that program for a year and at the end of it approached me and said, would you like to join my office as Assistant Dean for Faculty Development? And that was my entree and, and that was in uh, 2006, and that, you know, launched my career down the path towards being fully immersed in this office and now being in a senior associate dean role and working with faculty affairs and faculty development. Well, you just said something else that I love that we we say over and over and over again in our leadership programs at Hopkins, and that is, and I actually remember as Luann Thorndike said it when I was at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago, she came to talk with us, and it was about... Um, graceful self-promotion. I think that was her talk. But she said something that kind of stuck with me, and that is, as a leader, people are watching you all the time. They're taking your temperature all day long. And so this this concept that people watch you. And so I, I say this, something similar to this in all my leadership programs, and I say, not in a creepy kind of stalking way, but people are watching you. And just like you said, Sharon Hostler was watching you. That is so important that during the course of our day and our work that maybe we think becomes rote and humdrum and just kind of standard and you're just kind of cruising through, we have to be aware that people are watching us. And the fact that Sharon was watching you and observing you and unbeknownst to you. So you weren't putting on a show, you weren't on, on stage, but the awareness that people are watching us, our patients, our colleagues, our leaders are watching us looking for potential, looking to see that we can deliver and if we deliver and how we handle ourselves. So that's a great example of how you didn't even know it and look at where it landed you. Yeah, that's exactly how I've reflected on that whole experience, Kim. I think you're very right. And particularly people should think about if they enroll in a longitudinal program and make a commitment to it, they really need to make the commitment and they're in it to get something out of it. But be be aware that you're you're always performing, and in a longitudinal program like that, particularly when developing leadership skills, it almost certainly has the opportunity to provide you with new opportunities. So be mindful of 
picking up all the skills you can, building the relationships that are possible through that. So use it to your to your advantage. That's what it's there for. But know that it's also probably just because you were selected to be part of it. It's a springboard to new things. So be mindful of what might what you might want to do after you fi- finish that program. You're right, Sue. We we all the time when we get together in the dean's office when there are opportunities coming up, committees to lead, search committees to head. Uh, it's always this conversation, who can we pull? Who was from the women's program? Any ideas of anybody from the junior faculty leadership program? And so I also impart that tidbit to all the junior faculty and mid-career faculty. Listen, you're maybe one of 20, 30, 40 in this particular longitudinal course, but we are watching you. When speakers come and presenters come and they're observing how you interact in these small groups and, and your thoughtfulness and your presence uh, that is noted, and we do pull from these leadership programs and graduates to look at people to be uh, sitting on the bench, right? So you're exactly right that just because um, you're in a program, people some people want to like sit on the back of the room and kind of disappear. They're really not doing themselves any favors uh, without recognizing that, gosh, you know, we're watching you even right now, and we're noting for future reference who might be good for certain positions and opportunities. Uh, completely agree. All right. So everybody loves to hear about the office structure. Can you uh, run through what your office looks like now, perhaps? Troy Buer was telling us, you know, a couple of weeks ago, um, he's your director of faculty development. But um, why don't you give us a, a rundown of what your office structure is like? Yeah, happy to. So as I said, it's faculty affairs and faculty development. So let me talk about the faculty development side because I think that's that's fairly well developed. As um, you all, as your audience probably heard, Troy is a, a PhD. He got his PhD from our Curry School. He is just fantastic and creative, and um, he really is um, my partner in the faculty development side of things. Um, we laugh because I'm a, he's a framework guy, and I'm a very intuitive kind of, oh, yeah, I guess that's the framework I'm using kind of person. I tend to recognize the framework after I've done something for a while. So we complement each other because we have a really different way of thinking about things. And when he starts talking frameworks, it makes me a little anxious inside because I don't think that way. But it's really helpful to be able to mesh what we are together because I'm he'll put out some a framework and we'll riff on it for a while and come up with some really fun things. So Troy's the director and the other uh, faculty member in our office. And he and I are the only two faculty. Then we have Ashley Ayers, who really is uh, keeps the wheels on the bus. Ashley is just amazing. She came to, to us after graduating from undergraduate school here at UVA and has gradually grown in her expertise about running programs, tracking data. She is fantastic in being able to work um, as uh, independently to reach out to faculty, to chairs, to folks around the university. So it's really nice to have that person who's your face, who can write the emails independently, make the phone calls, you know, meet the deadlines for every single course and program. I mean, just somebody who can deal with the details and does it extremely graciously, down to having fantastic relationships with all the caterers in town. So we get great so um, Ashley is just she 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 does all the things and she loves doing it and that's the other thing is 
everybody's in a job that they love doing, I believe, that, that they stay in their jobs, but they, and that's really nice is when people are passionate about what they do, do it and it, it comes across in their excellence. And then Ashley has support in two, one full-time uh, support in her offer, offer um, Jennifer Amadon, and then a uh, part-time person, Alice Keys. Again, both of those help we Ashley do all of the transactional things around all of our various programs and do it beautifully and with a great attitude. So I can walk in two minutes before a program starts and walk out when the last participant walks out and know every detail is taken care of. So that's our faculty development side. It's still relatively small given that that group does, we literally have hundreds of hours of programming, but we tap into other resources. So we have programming and education that the education, um, the Office of Educational Affairs does a lot of the work around this. So we mostly do infrastructure. Um, we have a leadership program that's across the whole university. Ashley and Jennifer and Alice really support it all, and I help teach it. I'm, I'm one of the faculty, um, but we have folks from the provost's office and, and other faculty at the university involved. So we're a core piece of some larger larger things that we partner with other organizations, and then we have our own internal things that we own, which is programming across the mission areas with individual um, presentations, and we have a junior faculty development program that is uh, that is uh, built on the one that, that Luann and Mary Ellen Gussick developed um, many years ago, and so we have a very similar model to that. So that's the faculty development side. The faculty affair side is really, honestly, one person working on my team, a woman named Kathy Broadus, who manages our promotion and tenure, our emeritus elections, um, all of our appointments. She does all the APT, all our emeritus stuff, all our retirement stuff. She really does. She, she's a detail-oriented person who is great at process, and we have uh, support with, throughout the institution to really think about lean methodology and everything we do. And Kathy is fantastic at re really taking on new projects with that lean approach, setting up an A3, working through new processes. Again, my approach to those things is we're here. I want to go there. I think this is how, this is what it will look like. But Kathy can take it from concept to actual performance. And has we've, so we've developed new tools, new processes. You know, we did a big amount of work working on getting our APT process that from our school to our provost, because we have to report to the provost and send reports to the provost, perfecting that. So we were making sure the provost got what they wanted, so things went smoothly. Now we're really working hard on the, the place from the department to the school. So again, that's uniform, well understood, well supported. Um, so we've always got a project that we're trying to make things better, um, and Kathy just really dives into that and has a huge level of responsibility. I mean, when Kathy joined us, uh, she, you know, the P&T community, committee was really operating um, with just the committee members, and I just felt like they didn't have the support they needed. They really needed a staff person there to answer questions, to help, just help track down things, somebody part of the conversations. But that's a big thing to have a staff member sitting in on P&T discussions because they're so confidential and can be so sensitive. And Kathy's done such a beautiful job. She's completely accepted and highly valued as not a committee member. She doesn't vote, but she's there and present and supporting. Um, I also have 40% of a faculty member's time who's the director of academic advancement, which means this person, Bob Nakamoto, who's one of our uh, members of biological uh, Physiology and biological physics. Um, he is present at the meetings. Um, again, uh, really uh, is there as an advisor and moving process along because 
we really try to keep PNT arm's length from the dean's office. So I've never been to a PNT committee meeting. It's it's about the the committee themselves doing it. But Bob is there as um, my eyes and ears only in terms of uh, making sure we're compliant with our policies and our processes, and we're focusing on equity. You know, kind of as a person a step removed from the process who can really um, be mindful of of of, of higher level. Um, issues and goals and, and things to keep in mind. That's really interesting, this this idea that you have people in your office sit in these P&T committee meetings. At Hopkins, we don't do that. We have the, the chair, vice chair, and the committee members who are actually, I don't even know how they're appointed. I think mm. some of them have been around for year, you know, decades or more, but I really have no idea. And you're making me think how in the world that committee is put together uh, but we certainly don't have any representation on those committees, our professor promotions committee or our associate professor promotions committee. And gosh, you're making me think about, you know, we've, we've had some challenges at Hopkins with transparency around the promotions process and like everybody else trying to collect the data for equity and helping find ways for our clinicians to be promoted and, I never actually thought about having someone in our office as a matter of course, as you said it, making sure that we're adhering to our, what we call our gold book and silver book. Did you implement that or has that just been a historical fact around your promotion committees? Right. So um, our committees have always been uh, appointed for term. So we've always had ongoing turnover. We have one committee that looks at all promotions, and we now have some folks who are tenure-eligible, ineligible tracks on the committee. They only vote on tenure-ineligible promotions, but the point of all of that is, is the committee is, is uh, by our internal policy, made up of certain numbers of folks from basic sciences, from clinical departments. Um, we look for diversity of department, of specialty, of gender, of race, ethnicity on our committee, and they are appointed for a term and move off the committee, can, can be reappointed for one term. So those things were in place when I came in. What I added was a staff person there to be a support and uh, um, it'd be really be a support and to help with recording information, not actually recording it because the staff person doesn't know the nuances, but being there as part of the discussion, taking notes and helping with the documentation. And then as Sharon was transferring this role to me, she had worked with Bob Nakamoto very closely as and helped secured him in the role and originally secured it for about 20% of his time. We've increased it to 40 um, because the work basically the work's there and needs to be done and to do the work in a way that um, is very systematic. It was helpful to have somebody who could sit in the meetings and not vote or be part of even the discussion. He could clarify points of policy if needed to, but didn't vote, didn't express opinion but could then interpret what happened in the meeting um, when when the recommendations were made to the dean. Because then we get recommendations from the committee to the dean that the dean reviews with Bob, um, with the chairs of, and co-chair of the committee, if he wishes. Um, I'm there. I, I wasn't at the meeting, so, but I, I, you know, I help with the understanding of things. Um, but but it's really this connection that the recommendations go to the dean. The dean doesn't always agree, nor does the provost always agree with us. And we also, one of the things we do is really normalize that and say we have so many steps from the time a, a faculty member has their annual review to the time they actually are advanced and voted on by the Board of Visitors. We have like nine steps, 
And there are nine steps for a reason. And at any one of those steps, a previous recommendation can can be disagreed with. And that's okay. That's why it's such a long um, and detailed process. So we try to get across the message that if the dean doesn't agree with the committee or the provost doesn't agree with the dean, that's okay. It, it's all being done in the best interest of the faculty, and we, we really want to uh, make it possible for that rigorous process to be valuable at every step. Now, does your com- the promotion to tenure committee meet monthly or with what regularity? And I'm also assuming and curious about uh, the data reporting mechanism. Do Bob and Kathy collect and report data that you disseminate to your faculty writ large? You know, how many people went up for promotion? How many got promoted? What track, et cetera? So uh, our committee, it's a, it's a year-long cycle. So folks start submitting their materials in the spring. It's actually a little longer than a year. They start submitting their materials in the spring, and the final decision is, is a vote by the Board of Visitor a year later in June. So you might submit your materials May 1st of 2019 in order to be promoted July 1st of 2020. So it's a, Long process, a 14-month process, um, and we do have a report to the provost at the end of the year with all the data about how many people applied, how many dropped out, how many took time off the clock, yada yada yada. Um, and then we summarize that um, when we make a, a post on the dean's blog and in several different internal publications about who was promoted, what department, what you know, what they were promoted from and to. So we send all of that out, and then we don't necessarily say you know. Uh, 67 people applied and 64 were advanced, um, the obvious statement there being that three did not. Um, but we're, that kind of data is available when people ask. In general, people are, if we're doing it right, people are successful because things have been managed along the way. So the people are really come up to the point of promotion, really ready to put together a, a portfolio that demonstrates that the promotion is appropriate. That is just so interesting. I'm so glad you shared that. We really not talked about that on the Faculty Factory podcast yet. And it just is, you've really gotten me thinking about uh, all of our different processes and how we all do promotion and tenure differently. Our committees meet monthly. Gosh, you've really given me a lot of food for thought. That's great. Well, um, why don't you, I know you had some things you wanted to talk with us about, some interesting or unique, different, innovative things you're doing there at UVA or What's coming around the bend that you're excited about? Um, stories you'd like to share with us out here? So um, what do you want to talk about? Yeah, well, I was going to finish up just with the faculty affairs side saying I have a small office, but I have other responsibilities, and I mostly work with HR on that. And I, anyone who's heard me talk at GFA knows that I think highly of HR, but it's a little difficult when that team doesn't report to me in any way. Um, our HR now is a corporate service right across the entire university, and we're adjusting to that so we're building the the partnerships and learning from each other so i think we're in a in a good process but uh but you know i'm really involved in hiring and in disciplinary action and in retirement and you know in search committees but don't own any of that. So that that's a challenge both in terms of having the time to do it because there's no other professional uh, working in all those parts of it that that's part of our office um, and that no one reports to me. That I have great relationships with people, and, of course, that makes a big difference, but I think that's one thing that's worth kind of having all of us think about. I, and I've learned so much from the HR folks who've been part of GFA. There are things that I learned at GFA. I think about the nine box and succession planning. Troy and I teach about that, and we got that directly from the uh, MCW folks. And so I really um, appreciate what I've learned because I think it would be hard to learn that in isolation. So I just wanted to 
give a shout out. And, you know, one of the things you, you asked about is interesting stories and joy and burnout. I, I, there are a million interesting stories and that bring me joy that are from my affiliation with the group on faculty affairs. Um, I have to say that's, that's the other piece that I found in doing this work was that home of professional colleagues that I hadn't connected necessarily in either in the allergy world or the family medicine world, lots of great people in both of those worlds, but the things I love to think about and do really came together in the colleagues that I met in the GFA. So, you know, the names are too numerous to count, but there are many, many of you that I look forward to seeing every year at the meetings, and we exercise together and, you know, just have a great time. Um, So I have to say that's a huge um, a huge part of my life and what keeps me plugged in and enjoying what I do. I appreciate the learning communities that have sprung out of this group of professionals. I've been in various learning communities. It's really great to have conversations around challenges that we face and, um, and learn from each other. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I think the unique things that we're doing, one unique thing we're doing now and that we talked about on one of these learning committee calls last month, the one around professionalism that's being led by Ann Brown and Jessica Womack at Duke, uh, was uh, working uh, around the issue of patient discriminatory remarks. And the truth is that's not really my, that, that falls in a group of folks that are a little bit loosely connected with my office, but what is nice about UVA, I think, is that we're not siloed across any of the work we do around professionalism and diversity and, um, prof- and and professional development, we really feed off each other. So this great work is being developed around addressing discriminatory behavior. I was somewhat peripheral to it. I was invited to be at the table and was, but didn't have the expertise. But what I did have is connections to different parts of the AAMC that allowed us to bring it to do, it was presented at the GDI last year at the AAMC in a couple of different venues. We're talking about the GDI again next week, um, and next week it's GDI and GBA together, and one other group, I apologize, I forget the other one, we'll talk about a GFA again, but, but what, uh, yes, GUMs, oh, how can I forget that, yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So we'll talk a little bit about it there. So I love that our institution, we, we are really, um, so the different people wear different hats and different things, but we work well together and bring each other's work into other places. So I bring work around um, professionalism um, into di- venues that are the folks doing it here wouldn't necessarily find. So I think that's a, a you know we're small enough, and those of us interested in this kind of work have great relationships over long periods of times that we really can work collaboratively and get the, you know, get the most impact for the work we're doing. By the same token, things like the Junior Faculty Development Program, we learn from the folks doing it at other institutions. And, you know, it's it's scary to start something new. And, I you know, Troy and I, when we started ours uh, now almost four years ago, it's like, will this work or not? But you've got the encouragement of your colleagues who've done it at other places and have been doing it for over a decade. So you get it up and going and you have faith and you call on your colleagues for help and you do the things that branded as the UVA JDFP and we're into our fourth fourth cohort and now, you know, getting lots of applications and lots of accolades from those who participated. So it's really fun to have a community that shares ideas and supports you in in building new things. Um, That's just been great work. I love doing it. Yeah, I agree. I love, I love the support and and the, the, the knowing glances. It's just nice to be part of a community when we get together every year. And, you know, the idea that, you know, in your own hometown or in your own village, sometimes people don't get what you're doing or appreciate what you're doing. But when we're all in one room together, 
it's so reassuring, um, just like in our junior leadership programs where they can all look around and go, during the rush of the day, they're not really sometimes may not feel appreciated or valued, but they folks in the leadership programs look around and go, wait a minute, these are other le- junior faculty members just like me. They have the same concerns, anxieties, worries, challenges. And similarly, like us, we go to the PDC every year, Professional Development Conference, and I too feel such reassurance when I look around the rooms and I think, okay, they get it. I'm with people who understand the challenges and what can be crazy and the the joys and the wonderful rewards we get from doing this kind of work when back home in our own institutions, I think it's diluted by um, everything else going on. And so I, I, I agree with you that our group on faculty affairs family is it's just vital to to um what we do the other thing that i just really have loved doing that we've now been doing for three, for about 4 years is our work around what was faculty forward now the standpoint survey yeah. we've done it twice our response rate has been phenomenal it was 74% the first time and 79% this last time the chairs really really appreciate and make full use of it Troy and I presented it to the neurology department at, at noontime today and went through the results and talked about action planning. You know, one of the faculty who just finished his day FTP uh, kindly said, how do we make sure that the whole institution gets to benefit from the action plans done in each department? I was like, I'm so glad you asked because the chairs meet monthly and next Tuesday a chair is presenting their action plan and the next month another chair is presenting their action plan. And so people, you know, it takes a little while to get the wheels greased and get people to really see the big picture around why you do with something like Standpoint and what you can do with it. But I think we're really at this point where it has some momentum and people count on getting the data and are interested in what they, it says and recognize an action plan that moves the needle around one or two at most three things is really a big accomplishment and everything that they have to do. So I really feel like that the this place has embraced it, and I'm so um, pleased we've been able to be part of it. And that's another place where the learning community around Standpoint and the great resources at the WNC, Valerie and Jared, have just made it possible. It just just makes it um, a place you can go for resources from your colleagues and from the WNC team. Um, and I, I just think the survey is so very helpful. And ours this year, were at a, uh, you know, our, I presented it to our board of visitors about a month ago. That was, I mean, they were really interested in knowing what he said because they do coach in the rest of the university, and that gets a lot of attention. And we were asked um, when they did coach a year and a half ago why we didn't participate, and it was like because we did faculty forward a year and a half before you even did coach. We're kind of ahead of you, and this is what we do, and this is what we do with it. So it's just really nice to be part of that kind of national effort um, and, and see it make an impact on what you're doing at our school. Now, I'm wondering if you can think of a story that maybe it reflects, um, you're telling us that you encourage every department come up with one, two, three action plans at most that they want to work on. Can you think of maybe one good example of uh, an anonymous department that when they looked at their standpoint survey results in any particular year and how they came about with identifying a thing to address, and then how do they go about addressing that and then measuring that? Can, does a story come to you where you might say this is a good representation of how the standpoint data are used in, at UVA? Sure, sure. I can tell, talk about the, the chair who's presenting next week at the, uh, at the, the SMAC meeting, the Medical Advisory Committee meeting. Um, 
This particular chair is, is ahead of the game, but had been part of the survey several years ago, and so was aware of, you know, what was what the expectations were around the results. And so, you know, one of the places where at least we've seen in the last couple of years people tend to to score on the lower side is satisfaction with communication about finances or transparency around finances. So what this chair did was uh, offer a, a, an optional um, faculty meeting that looked at um, that that really went through finances, explained you know how what comes in, what goes out, how how do we design, uh, how do we make decisions around allocations of of uh, our funds, how we make decisions about incentives. He had, you know, solid lines about the things we can depend coming in and dotted lines around the things that we can't necessarily depend coming in and that, and then dotted lines to incentives because, you know, if you don't know if you're going to get a certain amount of money, you don't know how many incentives. And he said, it, you know, it was an hour long. People had great questions. And the really nice thing was it really, you know, people, uh, uh, withdrew. I mean, it just really seemed to, um, settle any angst people had about or, or minimize the requests people had for special funds. They understood how decisions were made and what the processes would be. And so things that end up being special requests or end arounds or I'm not being treated fairly, he said, you know, it's just been a short time since he did that, but he said he could tell right away people had a much deeper understanding about how a decision, when they had a request for funds, how that decision would be made. And, you know, he said it actually decreased requests for, you know, I think some things got taken off the table because people understood kind of the, that there's a process that we now understand and that we support and move forward. And another thing the same chair did is there was a request for or there was uh, not great satisfaction with the ability of faculty to um, be involved in decision making. So what he did is when they have important decisions to make, he sets up a, uh, a survey monkey question and lets people weigh in and they can weigh in and they are only identifiers that are divisions, and then he asked the division heads to look at the, the report from the division, have conversations with the faculty, and then feed that into the decision-making process. So people really have a chance to weigh in. It doesn't mean that they get to decide or that it's a vote, but they get to be heard um, when important decisions are being made um, in the department. So those are both things that happened just this year. And this is a department that's a very high-functioning department, and their scores didn't suggest people were particularly dissatisfied. But until everybody, until 100% of people are satisfied, there's always opportunities to say, how can we be better? And, you know, he took these on right away. And as I said, he'll present it to his colleagues next week. Wow. What a great leader. That is a great example of demonstrating the value of the data and how rather than sitting on a shelf, this great leader just said, okay, communication, transparency, faculty yeah. asking questions rather than getting frustrated and giving off an appearance of things are hidden or secretive or this big black box. Let's open it up. I love, I love that um, initiative, and I and I think that's a great example of how we can use data to make improvements. And good for you. Good for him. But I think the the critical pieces are chairs take it very so seriously, and that's you never know if they are or not, but. Our dean now expects them to, and when we're doing the survey, Jared and Valerie are kind enough every week to tell you the response rate by department, and we send that right out with a bar graph so everybody can see how they're doing related to everybody else, and I think that really drives participation. So we get great, great responses. Yeah, and you clearly set up a culture at UVA where you're holding um, your leaders accountable. And so yeah. that's, I think that's really key. So Sue, what else, what else would, you, would you like to share with uh, the, the family out here? 
You know, I, I just really appreciate being able to hear other people's stories because I think the stories are what make family medicine fun and what make faculty development fun. So I just want to thank you, Kim, for giving, giving me the opportunity to speak. Um, I'm sure I could uh, – I'll get off the phone and think of a million more things I wanted to say, but um, I, I think I've covered the main points that uh, that were important for me to share today. Um, and, you know, I want to thank all my colleagues within my institution and especially my dear friends um, in G and GDI and GFA. Um, I just really enjoy the work and enjoy being involved with so many of the things we get to do to help our faculty colleagues. That's another episode of the Faculty Factory Podcast, everybody. (laughs) You've been hearing Sue Pollard, the Senior Associate Dean at UVA. Till next time, bye everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.